player, please. Um, so it's Mother's Day, and today I'm going to talk about the life that mothers are privileged to bring into this world. Uh, this week, uh, the news has been full of the issue of what can be done with babies in the womb. This morning, we're going to talk about sanctity of life. When we hear the term sanctity of life, usually these days the focus is on abortion and the church's opposition to it. But sanctity of life means sanctity of all life, from womb to the tomb, so to speak. And so not only is the church pro-life being opposed to abortion, but we also are opposed to euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide. If we believe in God's word and want to live it as Christians, then we need to understand why God's word not only commands respect and honor for human life, but also requires that God's people take an active role in fighting for life at all stages. So this morning, I'm focusing primarily on pro-life with regards to the unborn, but most of what I'm going to present to you from Scripture Uh, as well as historical and contemporary sources, will have application as well to euthanasia and other related topics. Um, Monday evening, uh, Corinna and I were in the car waiting for our groceries to be brought out. And I pulled out my phone and I saw the news of this leak from the Supreme Court, an opinion that's not formally released yet, but to the effect that the court was going to strike down Roe v. Wade. I told Corinna, and a moment later, I began to cry. She said, I knew you'd cry. (laughs) And she knew this because this issue is very emotional for me. And I told her that for nearly 50 years, Christians have been fighting against Roe v. Wade. I grew up immersed in the pro-life movement. My mom was active in the pro-life movement. My sister and I attended pro-life events. As long as I can remember, the issue of abortion has weighed heavily on me, and it still does today. But the church did not just wake up and become pro-life after Roe v. Wade. That was 1973, but the church has been pro-life from the very beginning. And I'm going to share a bit with that in a bit, but I was clearly not the only one emotional after the news of Monday night. For the rest of the week, uh, the news showed there's emotions on both sides, and that's not to be unexpected. One person said that for some, abortion has become a religious ordinance. And uh, for, for some, any law that may restrict abortion is the equivalent of denying religious right, rights. Um, And that's not true necessarily for all who call themselves pro-choice, but it certainly seems to be the case for some of them. Um, How could someone be so outraged over the fact that someone wants to legally protect the lives of unborn children? How can it seem so outrageous to some that we insist that mothers be mothers and deliver the child that they're responsible for? I'm not totally surprised at the response of secular people on this issue. Because Romans 1 tells us all about how their minds are working. What bothers me even more is that some that call themselves Christians are apathetic about this issue. They may say they're personally against abortion, 
but we shouldn't be engaged in this politics, they'll say. People make their own decisions. Yet that logic doesn't hold up, does it? You, you wouldn't say, for example, well, I'm personally opposed to arson, but I don't think it's my business to tell people what to do. Or I'm personally opposed to people assaulting others, but it isn't my place to tell others what to do. Yet on this very critical issue of abortion, many Christians take that very position. So it's my hope this Mother's Day to explain what the Bible teaches us and what God's response is. God does not allow us to take a neutral stance on assault. He doesn't allow us to take a neutral stance on a lot of things. If God is against something, we should be as Christians. And Scripture has much to say about mistreatment and harm to the innocent and the helpless. God hates abortion, and so should Christians. My message is going to cover three main areas. First, people are made in God's image. We will see what Scripture says about this and what it means in light of taking another's life, especially one who is innocent. Second, in his rebellion, Satan has perverted God's ways and led many people into his his service of rebellion against God. And third, we're going to talk about what the response of the church should be to abortion and other life issues. So first, let's look at some of the compelling, the most compelling issue, I think, that Scripture offers to us on how we are to view human life in all its stages as sacred and worth protecting, and that is that human beings are made in the image of God. We begin in the creation account when God first created uh, humans. In Genesis 1, and 27, it says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see three times in there the word image? Pretty important. Now, when we hear the word image, usually, most of us, I think I can say, we think of a visual image, a picture, a representation of something. But that is not exactly what is meant here. After all, Scripture tells us God is spirit. He cannot be seen. Yes, Jesus was fully man and fully God, and he said those who had seen him and had seen the Father. But what about the rest of us? Those who first read the creation account up until today with, with the exception of a relatively small population who were present during the advent of Christ, everybody else other than that have not seen God, that is, with their eyes. So, no, people being made in the image of God is not about our physical appearance. And what is it then? Well, it means that God has put his own special imprint on our very souls and in our emotions and in our ability to relate to him and each other. Human beings share many of God's attributes, even though ours are not perfected. In Genesis, we are reminded again that Adam was made in the image of God. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. You know, we often say if the Bible says something once, you're supposed to pay attention. Twice, pay a little better attention. If it repeats something again and again, it's something really important. We ought to know it. And so 
We're going to look at a few more here. Ephesians 4, 23 and 24. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 9 to 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing how you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So God's image is in all of us, and believers, we are all one. There's not these differences of race or anything else. So each person is made in the image of God. Sin, however, taints that image. But in Christ, we have the hope and promise of a restoration of the perfect image of God in us. James writes in his discourse on the dangers of the tongue that it is sinful to even use our words to curse another person because that person's made in the image of God. James 3.9, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This, James is pointing out, is a contradiction. How can one bless the Lord with the same tongue that they speak evil about someone who bears God's image? So every person is made in God's image. Think of the person in your life who has been your biggest tormentor, your biggest pain. Yes, they are made in the image of God. Or to go even further than that, how about Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-il or Adolf Hitler made in the image of God? Now, hopefully we could based on this alone conclude that God has made people in his image that we would see that human life is special and worth preserving since God is the creator who makes each person special. But we don't even need just our intuition to tell us this because God specifically links this concept, the concept that we're made in the image of God, to protection of life. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by men his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. Exodus twenty-one twelve, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Leviticus 24, 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Numbers 35, 31 to 33. You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So while people are not free to decide for themselves about killing another since it's forbidden, God has ordained the death penalty for those who shed the blood of innocence. Now this is another topic entirely But let me just say, Scripture does also lay out the requirements for that to happen, including fair trials, eyewitnesses that can attest to the murder. Scripture also differentiates from self-defense that leads to a death, and even it identifies what manslaughter is. And we're going to actually be looking at that 
in our next section of Deuteronomy when we get to, back to Deuteronomy. And, of course, the commandment is there to not bear false witness against another was also to prevent people from lying and blaming one another wrongly. Now, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on the science of when life begins, because if anything, science has done enough to prove that an unborn child is indeed a separate human being from the mother. By the time the mother can even know she's pregnant, the child has already begun to take form and have a heartbeat. It's not a clump of cells, which is a lie that has been told to many women over the years. In fact, from the very moment of conception when egg meets sperm, an entirely new DNA code is written, and there's a unique being. There are people this week still saying, well, we can't know when life begins or when it's time to protect it, to which I say, baloney. A common chant among abortion supporters is, my body, my choice, but when the science is clear, the infant inside the mother is not part of her body, but rather a vulnerable dependent who needs protection and care. Now, we've looked at what the Bible says about humans being made in the image of God, and Scripture tells us that even in the womb, God knows us, and he knows what plans he has for us. For a believer who carefully considers the whole of Scripture, there can be no alternative to arrive at other than the fact that we are compelled to defend innocent life. I will touch on that towards the end some more, and I have Scripture to back all of this up. So what I present this morning is not merely my opinion, but the only conclusion that you can find in light of Scripture. Now, we've looked at what the Bible says about the image of God. Now let's take a look at how Satan perverts every good thing that God gives us and twists it into evil. First of all, what do we know about Satan? He's the ultimate rebel. Whenever you may be tempted to call yourself a rebel, remember that's not necessarily a positive thing. Probably not, in fact. Satan wanted to usurp God's power. He wanted complete autonomy, complete freedom, and he wanted the worship that God deserved. And he convinced many of his followers, those who follow him willingly, and also some that follow him ignorantly, to declare that no rules apply. Everyone has a right to do what makes themselves happy. There's no one greater than the self. And like Satan, there's many who want to live a life without rules imposed on them. Certainly not rules imposed by God, but they don't even want to have rules that are imposed on, based on social norms or human law. But Satan isn't satisfied with just mere disobedience. He wants to pervert God's ways, make a mockery of that which is holy. So let's look at a few examples where Satan makes a mockery of holy things. Take marriage, for example. God ordains it. That is a holy union. That is, for us, a visible representation of the perfect unity found in God. It's a metaphor for our relationship with him and for Christ in the church. What does Satan do to pervert marriage? Well, you know some of the answers already. First, there's adultery, fornication outside of marriage. There's easy divorce. There's polygamy. There's homosexuality. Another example, I just read the scripture 
to start us out, God made them male and female. But that's not good enough for the rebels. Now people can choose their own gender. Or not even just their own gender. They can identify as a cat or some such foolishness. How about worship? Well, Satan has accomplished much in this area, too, in perverting the worship of God. We use music and devotion to worship God, and Satan twists those things into worship of of depravity. The church of Satan even has buildings that look not much different than ours. And they have upside-down crosses, and people bow at his altar to worship him. Satan perverts everything. He takes God's order and reverses it. And in his perversion of God's ways of worship, he has mockingly imitated some elements of it. We see examples of this in Scripture. Leviticus 18.21, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Well, who is Molech? Well, Moloch Moloch was a demonic god. And to please Molech, child sacrifices were made. In some cases, they would have a metal statue of Molech with his hands held out as though to receive something. And those metal hands would be heated to being red hot and a baby or an infant placed onto those hands. Why do this? Well, if they believed that it pleased Molech, they would have good harvests. You see, they, weren't, they were sacrificing children so that their lives would be a little easier. Isn't it interesting that today over 92% of women surveyed after they had an abortion admit that they had it for some selfish reason, such as career, finances, looks, and so on. Josiah, one of the kings who tried to reform Israel, tore down the altars to Molech, 2 Kings 23.10, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Jeremiah preached against the worship of demons. Jeremiah 32, 34, and 35, they set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the city of the son of Hinnom, to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. In celebration of the goodness of God and his faithfulness, the psalmist commended God for being faithful even when his people did not honor him with obedience. Psalm 106, 34 to 39, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Sacrificing innocence at the altar of Satan, whether in the form of Baal or Molech, or in any of the many forms he has taken throughout history, is a total perversion of what God had ordained. God ordained sacrifice, but the blood of man was sacred. And even the animal blood was never to be consumed. But Satan is worshipped through the sacrifice of innocence. And abortion and infanticide have always been one of the ways that Satan has perverted the good things of God. There's a man that's out there trying to teach Christians about this 
named Zachary King. He's a former Satanist and high wizard. And he's um, shared about the link between the Church of Satan and modern abortion. And I'm going to read some excerpts from an interview he did. And this is from an article by Michael uh, Hickburn. But this guy is Zachary King again, former Satanist and now a Christian. Here's what he said. Just after I turned 14... There was a party with all the male members between 12 and 15 and a female member over 18, and her purpose was to get pregnant, and then she was going to have an abortion in nine months. When I asked about what an abortion was to the COVID members, I said, I don't know what I have to do here. They explained that there's a baby in the womb, and you are going to kill it. There will be an abortion doctor there to help you, and there will be a nurse, because it's a full medical procedure. My first question was, is that legal? The response was, yes, as long as it's in the womb. As long as the baby is still inside the womb, you can kill it. That's how it was explained to us, says King. It was also explained that you are killing a baby. They didn't say we would be killing a fetus or killing some cells in the body. None of that, a baby. Now, I don't think I would have been okay with killing a baby outside of a woman's body, but knowing I could kill as much as I wanted if someone was inside the body in Satanism... Killing something or the death of something is the most effective way of getting your spell accomplished. As far as trying to get Satan's approval to give you something that you want, killing something is the best way to go. Killing something is the ultimate offering to Satan, and if you can kill an unborn, that is his ultimate goal. I'd estimate I've done about 20 ritual abortions inside these facilities, and by the way, these facilities, he's referring to the the name brand abortion clinics out there. But I never counted, he said. I just know that I've been in a lot of them. All the ones I went to doing abortions in them were terribly unsanitary. They looked like a house of horrors. And regarding some of the organizations that fight for abortion rights, King said this, a lot of those people are Wiccan. And the Wiccans, though they profess to have a stance for the preservation of life, They're allowed to smite or smote anyone who goes against them in any way, which is to say that they're allowed to destroy them by any means necessary, which is through magic for them. For instance, as Christians, we pray for their conversion. Well, they see that as open season on Christians. They as well see the female figure of the woman, like Mother Earth or Gaia. So they have this womanly figure that they worship, and they imagine that she is the goddess. A child takes away from that, so abortion is a satanic sacrament, so to speak. So just as Catholic men will join the priesthood because they are attracted to holiness and to working for God, an abortion facility attracts Satanists for a satanic priesthood. Continuing on, King says, More than once I've had a baby defy the odds and survive the abortion. Listen to this. One time I arrived at the abortion facility and there were people on two sides of the street. On one side were people praying and calling out against abortion. And on the other side that I was on were obviously for abortion and they were yelling all kinds of obscenities at the people across the street. When we went inside and looked across the street, we saw all the people on the other side of the street on their knees. That day the abortion we had scheduled for a ritual did not go through. I think this happened to me about three times, and all three times he said, it's funny, but that never really clicked with me, but all three abortions were thwarted by what can really only be attributed to the prayers that were going on outside. 
If you want to read more about that, some of it gets very gruesome, and I won't share it here on Mother's Day. I can provide you the links or whatever. There's a video online called Abortion, a Doctrine of Demons. I couldn't even show it in church, because it, but it clearly lays out the connection that abortion has to Satanism and the cult. In the video, Lucian Graves, a spokesperson for the Church of Satan, is interviewed, as well as a lady named Jax Blackmore, and Blackmore says that Satan inspires a rebellion in mankind against a tyrannical God. The video shows how pro-life protesters are attacked by people who yell, Hail Satan, and physically attack. One man, young man was in such a frenzy to destroy the signs of the pro-life group he looked like a possessed person. The video says that Satanic Temple considers abortion to be one of the rites of Satan's church. And the Satanic Temple teaches its members that defending abortion access is a worthy form of worship to Satan. And that Satanists should worship through activism. So when people may say, well, we don't have people sacrificing to Molech today, they may not use that name. It's still a spiritual battle, folks. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. Of course, you've heard of the abortion clinics selling the parts of babies, but what we have not seen in the news is that satanic rituals are going on right in some of those clinics. Just as a church might have a dedication ceremony for a new sanctuary, many Planned Parenthood clinics have prayer services to dedicate them. In some cases, apostate so-called Christian priests attend these, and they call the work of the abortion clinic the work of God, all while standing side by side with those who are doing the murderous work. God declares his will. Satan perverts everything. So what should be the response of God's church? Simply this. The church should do whatever it can to bring dignity to life. We should be pro-life, not just for the unborn, but all stages of life. We should be pro-life for those with disabilities. We should preserve life when we can by feeding the hungry. We should offer alternatives to abortion and speak out against it. If the Church of Satan considers defensive abortion rights as acceptable worship, then what acceptable worship can we offer God in opposing the work of Satan? In Scripture, there are over 40 mentions of the fatherless. God commands protection of the fatherless. We are supposed to fight for justice for the fatherless, provide for the fatherless, protect the fatherless. It's an Old Testament principle renewed in the New Testament church. In fact, you may not know that abortion and infanticide were much more common around the world before the church. In Rome, no rights were provided whatsoever to children. A parent could kill their own child, sell it, leave it in the sun to die, throw it in the river, all without any legal consequences. When the gospel spread throughout Rome, though, so did a new attitude about life. Early Christians worked to preserve life. Christianity basically invented the hospital and the orphanage. I don't know if you knew that. Christians would seek for the children, mostly infants that were left to die in the elements in order to save them. They would search the riverside for babies that had been thrown into the river to drown. In time, Christianity impacted all of Rome and ended infanticide there. St. Patrick in his mission to Ireland, eventually had such an impact that the Celts stopped aborting and committing infanticides. 
over and over, wherever the gospel has traveled, hearts have been changed, and inevitably that change of attitudes involves the sanctity of life. For how can one submit to Christ who commands obedience to his world without word without seeing that God has commanded each of us to fight for life? You see, the command to fight for life is found in a command that encompasses so much more. We talk about it all the time at Oasis Church and in the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Great Commission. Jesus said to them, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them to, con- to observe all that I have commanded you. What has Christ commanded that has to do with life? Much. In fact, everything he taught comes back to this. God is the author of life, and as his servants, we are stewards of his creation, so we must be for life. We heard a lot about what Satan wants, and it stems from what is sometimes referred to as the sin of Satan, pride, selfishness, anarchy. For the worshipers of Baal and Molech, personal desires for food and wealth drove them to sacrifice their own children. Today, the pride of Satan is what drives the vast majority of abortions. I'm not ready for a child. I can't afford it now. It's inconvenient. We just bought a house. I can't put my career on hold. I don't want to lose my figure. Self, self, self. In ancient times, humans, sometimes children, sometimes elderly, sometimes the handicapped, were killed on the altar of the benefit of society. In order that someone not be a burden, the undesirable were killed in many societies. Today, people have elective abortions because they fear something like Down syndrome. Abortion has been openly discussed as a potential remedy for climate change. Since some concerned with climate change think the problem is too many people, naturally the idea comes that one solution would be abortion. I don't think if that's your position, you're that far off from getting rid of the old people and the cripples as well. I have good news, though. I know this has been heavy. The church has the answer. Faith, hope, and love. Satan offers freedom to sin. God offers freedom from sin. That's what the good news is all about. We have that good news to share with everyone. From the one considering an abortion to the one who has already had one, God offers forgiveness and hope for the future. We have a responsibility not only to share the gospel, to make use of those rights, we have to push our government to bring back morality. Morality is under assault, but we, need to throw up our, we don't need to throw up our hands and say, oh, it's too late to change the culture, because Christ's church has always changed the culture. It's always been off, on the offense. And our approach must be two-pronged. To share the gospel and to pray that God would convince others of his truth and also to do our best to convince others that life is worth defending. Finally, I hope you've seen this morning that this is most assuredly a spiritual battle. And for a spiritual battle, we need spiritual weapons and spiritual armor. Ephesians 6.10 gives us that, those weapons and that armor. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak, Paul Paul wrote. There is hope. It's in Christ. Wherever the gospel has taken hold, entire cultures have been changed. History is showing this. The Bible promises it, and we have the confidence that his word is true. Our charge then is not only to defend life where we can through whatever means we can, but to bring forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will never convince an unregenerate person of the true evil of abortion. However, if you share the gospel for those who God draws to himself to respond to that faith, their eyes will be opened and they will be able to see things biblically with the help of those believers who will bring them forward. We are not to look at the world and the lack of morality in it with despair. Rather, the entire world is our mission field. Today, we celebrate mothers. And from the newest mother among us to the great-great-grandmothers, we honor you. And we honor the sacrifice that you've given for your children. God has given mothers a special privilege. And you are blessed through the struggles to raise up those precious children and in the midst of the pain that comes with it is a glorious blessing from our Lord. Before I close, I want to say to those who may feel convicted by this message this morning, maybe you are one who defended abortion rights. Maybe someone here has participated in an abortion. If your heart is broken over these things, know this, that King David was confronted about his sin his response to being confronted with his sin was a broken heart. And he brought his broken heart to the Lord for healing. One of his prayers in response to this is found in Psalm 51. I'm going to read portions of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Skipping down to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop that I may, shall be clean. Wash me that I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways 
and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, David sinned greatly. He saw the consequences of his own sin. He saw the impact it had on his own family. His sins included adultery and murder to cover up the adultery. And yet, God said David was a man after his own heart. And David was blessed with a man who was willing to look him in the eye and say, you are the man who sinned greatly. David repented and received the mercy of God. You see, David was made in God's image, just as you and I are. So he created us with the ability to be drawn to him and relate to him. If you have sinned in participating in abortion or supporting it, and if your heart is broken over this sin, there's hope for you. There's mercy abundant. Turn your sorrow into joy. That joy comes when we bring to God the sacrifice of a broken spirit. God will receive with joy the truly repentant sinner. May God grant each of us here and those listening online to be broken over our sins so that we may rejoice in his mercy and grace. This sermon had some heavy parts, I know. And I debated whether even to share some of those darker parts, and there's darker parts I didn't share because it's Mother's Day. But I want to finish with this. The light of dawn shines brighter after the darkest night. All we need to do is follow the light. John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you. Your word was a heavy burden to me this morning, Lord.